0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation, Carol Browner shares what eight years as the head of the Environmental Protection Agency taught her about addressing global warming in nonpartisan and business-friendly ways. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby.
1: And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today, we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series.
0: The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, The Stanford Social Innovation Review.
1: To receive our conversations updates and learn what new podcasts are available, please subscribe to our free bi-monthly newsletter at www.siconversations.org.
2: Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com.
1: And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation.
2: Our speaker this evening is Carol Browner principal at the Albright Group, a global consulting firm founded by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Carol Browner first came to prominence as an environmental leader when she served as Secretary of Florida's Department of Environmental Regulation in the early 1990s. President Bill Clinton appointed her to the top position at EPA in 1993. It's a huge responsibility. The agency has a $7 billion budget and 18,000 employees. What's particularly remarkable about Carol Browner is that she stayed in the job for eight years, start to finish, of both Clinton terms, the longest of any EPA administrator in agency history. Many political observers think that along with the FEMA director, trying to run EPA is the toughest job in Washington. I know a little bit about this because I worked for Carol's predecessor at EPA, Bill Riley. First thing you learn as EPA Administrator is that everybody is mad at you. And I mean everybody. Businesses complain that the EPA pollution control rules are too tough. and Environmental groups argue that the rules aren't tough enough. You get to Washington and you assume that the president is your boss because he was the guy who stood beside you to nominate you in the ceremony. But in short order, you find that you have 435 congressmen and 100 senators as your bosses any one of whom can haul you in front of a televised public hearing if something EPA does adversely affects their district or state. Then, just as you're getting settled at EPA, you begin to realize that every other Cabinet Department, for example, State, Agriculture, Interior, Health and Human Services, to name a few, believes it knows more about addressing environmental problems than EPA at interagency meetings which occur daily in Washington to hash out federal policy the cabinet secretaries or their deputies will try to poke holes in the most well-considered EPA plans and if and when you get invited to the White House for a cabinet meeting with the president you sit in a chair on the edge of the room not at the table because according to a bizarre bureaucratic pecking order the head of EPA is not officially part of the cabinet And finally, to add insult to injury, you have to go back to your office set in the most isolated part of federal Washington in a building that suffers from indoor air pollution. The EPA administrator can't open her windows and hundreds of employees go home early some days because their work environment has sickened them. This is really true. Incidentally, it took 10 years from when EPA employees first started complaining about the building before the federal government was able to find a new location for the office. Despite these political and environmental working conditions, Carol Browner was enormously successful in her job. She did so much more than survive for eight years. She emerged as an even-handed, forceful leader, liked by the business and environmental communities, and eventually she won over even Congress. What I admire most about Carol Browner's record is her dedication to the nitty-gritty environmental issues like protecting our nation's water and air. It's easy to take the steady progress our country is making on the environment for granted. In fact, millions of pollution sources have to be regulated. Carol Browner, navigating through critics and naysayers, got the job done. A lawyer by training, she viewed the scientists at EPA with respect and let their work inform federal policies on the environment. She didn't let the science get manipulated by people with narrow political agendas. In a time of steady economic growth for this country, nearly every environmental metric improved during the eight years Carol Browner served at EPA. Her legacy touches us all today. Without further delay, please welcome Stanford's Von Guggenberg lecturer for this school year and environmental hero of our time, Carol Browner.
0: Thank you, Adam, for that wonderful introduction. Um, As Adam said tonight, I am the longest-serving administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Several years ago, another person introducing me wanted to uh, similarly note. Instead, however, they said, and she's the longest-suffering administrator. Um, It has its moments, although I want you to know that we did, in fact, move EPA to a new building, to a historic building. I had the best realtor in DC, the Vice President of the United States, Al Gore. And, and even at the White House, things got a little bit better. Bill Clinton actually gave me a chair at the cabinet table. So things do change. Things do improve. And uh, truth be told, the eight years at EPA were really wonderful. So I'm in a business school. I figure I better start with a few numbers. 36 the number of cubic miles of arctic ice melting into the sea each year. 36 cubic miles, that is roughly 225 times the amount of water used annually by the city of Los Angeles. 27, the record number of tropical storms that formed over the Atlantic coast just last year. Four of the 27 Became category five hurricanes, setting another record. 21 million, the number of acres of Canadian forest now infested by the pine by the mountain pine beetle. Why? Because winter is warmer, and so the habitat is growing. 5,802 million the number of metric tons of carbon dioxide released by the US in 2003. We, the US, are 20% of all global emissions. But we are only 5% of the world's population, $100 the estimated cost to the US economy of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And those are just some of the facts. the mounting evidence, there still continue to be a very very vocal group of naysayers, including some very influential voices. George Will, the political pundit, recently suggested two weeks ago that scientists have it all wrong. Global warming is within the margin of error. The public's concern for greenhouse gas emissions is a product of the science journalism complex. I have no idea what that is. Bob Novak wrote in his weekly column a week ago that action is not needed anytime soon. Since global warming's tipping point is so far in the future, technological advances surely will be available to cope with the problem. Just last month, President Bush again refused to acknowledge any causal link between greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. The chairman of the Senate, Environment and Public Works Committee, James Inhofe, called global warming perhaps the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. Apparently, one of the naysayers, I I find this quite interesting, one of the naysayers' uh, primary sources of information is Michael Crichton. You may know him as the author of Jurassic Park. Well, not only has he been invited to the White House to brief President Bush on his book, which called Global Warming a Myth. He has also testified before the United States Senate as an expert witness. Now look, I'm happy to give the guy his due on extraterrestrials and emergency room procedures, but please, an expert on global warming. The naysayers arguments are without a doubt, seductive, they resonate with the public. They are simple, but they are also simply misleading. What are their arguments? We need more science. Maybe global warming is a good thing. Imagine a warmer winter. That's something we would all like who live in the North. It's not man-made. It's just a natural occurrence. Maybe we can just wait. Do we really need more science? Science Magazine analyzed 928 peer-reviewed scientific papers addressing climate change. Papers written between 1993 and 2003. None. Zero. None of these papers challenged the scientific consensus that the Earth's temperature is rising due to human activity. Could global warming really be a good thing? Well, why don't we ask the 11,000 plus citizens of the low lying Pacific island chain of Tuvalu who are preparing to abandon their homes for higher ground? Their leader referred to his people as the world's first environmental refugees. More intense hurricanes, flooding, saltwater intrusion into freshwater supplies, spread of serious disease, changes in agricultural production all of these are things that the scientific community believes global warming is likely to cause. Hardly any could be called a good thing. Is global warming really not man-made? The National Academy of Science in 2001 concluded, greenhouse gases are accumulating in the Earth's atmosphere as a result of human activities. The National Academy of Sciences, this is the very academy that the current administration has referred to as the gold standard of independent scientific review. The EPA concluded in 2002, most of the warming over the last 50 years is attributable to human activities. The American Meteorology Society, the American Geophysical Union, the American Association for the Advancement of Science all have issued statements concluding that the evidence for human modification of climate is compelling. So the last argument, we can afford to wait. Hardly. There was a survey out just last week that while we have been waiting, while we have been debating this issue for the last 10 years or so, CO2 emissions at the country's 100 largest power plants increased. At the same time, their emissions of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides, important dangerous pollutants, which are actually regulated by the federal government, decreased. 11 National Scientific Academies, including the US National Academy of Science, signed a joint statement in 2005. The scientific understanding of climate change is now sufficiently clear to justify all nations taking action. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a partisan issue. There are many in the president's own political party who believe that climate change is real and that the time for action is sooner rather than later. Earlier this year, I participated in a 35th anniversary uh, of the EPA. It was 35 years ago that Richard Nixon created the EPA. And I was joined, or, or I joined, with all of the other surviving former administrators. There's only one who is no longer with us. And the moderator of the panel had any number of questions uh, for the former administrators and the current administrator. And eventually, he asked about climate change. And he asked for a show of hands from the administrator, the former administrators. Is global warming real? Every single one on that stage, every single former administrator there, including the current administrator, said yes. We weren't divided by political ideology. I believe that we were united by the science and the evidence that points to the significance of this. It's interesting, because what do EPA administrators know firsthand? They know the dilemma, the consequences of inaction. Administrator after administrator has spent their tenure dealing with our failure, our inability, our unwillingness to make decisions 20, 30, 40 years ago to protect our environment, whether it's toxic dumping and the consequences of Superfund sites and the failure to protect communities from Superfund sites, or the use of DDT, which ultimately was banned, but before it was banned, it almost drove the bald eagle to extinction. Every single one of these administrators understands, I believe, the need to get on with the job of actually reducing greenhouse gases, reducing the US carbon footprint. And they're not alone. Eight Northeast states, Democratic and Republican governors, have joined together to make a binding commitment to reduce their greenhouse gases. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, and just last week, Maryland. And you heard today. The governor of your own state announcing that California will similarly pursue measurable reductions in greenhouse gases. Across the country, 200-plus mayors have signed a compact to um, reduce emissions in keeping with the Kyoto Protocol. When you take all of these states, when you take all of these cities together, 109 million Americans, 37 percent of the U.S. population, now live where at least one of their political leaders, if not more, has said it is time to do something. Businesses, US businesses, are also making commitments. The Pew Center on Global Climate Change now counts 41 corporate members representing $2 trillion in market capitalization and over 3 million employees. 41 corporate members all doing something about their greenhouse gas emissions. The Chicago Climate Exchange now has 111 members. These are companies, cities, and states engaged in the trading of carbon financial instruments. So why are more businesses changing their tune about climate? Why are more of them prepared to do something? Why are more businesses calling for a federal program? Perhaps it's the public sentiment, the swell in public sentiment but perhaps more importantly it's the business imperatives for any company that operates in multiple states a state by state or even a regional program ultimately presents a challenge if not a nightmare different rules different expectations are hard for large companies business-make decisions based on the bottom line and most understand that compliance with a single federal program will be less complicated and less expensive than compliance with a patchwork of 10, 20, 30, or even 50 separate greenhouse gas programs. The Federal Clean Water Act came about, in part, as a response to the concerns of industry, that each state had different rules and regulations. The same for the Federal Clean Air Act. Already, many multinationals, uh, those with operations in Europe, are now part of a mandatory climate change cap and trade program. So the business community is seeing the reality. They're understanding the consequences and invariably are coming to the support of one national system. Companies are also beginning to face direct pressure from shareholders in the form of shareholder resolutions. Last year, institutional investors filed 30 shareholder resolutions calling on companies to address global warming. Several dozen other companies avoided resolutions by entering into negotiations with their investors. For example, Progress Energy, a large energy company based in the Southeast, recently released a new report on climate change advocating the development of a national climate change policy for both the public and private sector. In return, the New York City comptroller withdrew its shareholder resolution. Corporate and social responsibility now includes everything from human rights to water conservation to global warming. Groups like the Pew Center, Ceres, and others are working closely with businesses to encourage climate-friendly operations. DuPont has achieved a reduction of 72 percent in its greenhouse emissions since 1990. BP plans to invest $8 billion over the next decade in solar, wind, hydrogen, and other clean energy technologies. Publicly held companies that have accountability to their stockholders can no longer afford to ignore the evidence that global warming may have a negative impact on their bottom line. Not only do companies have to protect themselves from disaster, they must also consider whether their operations contribute to the underlying causes of global warming. But voluntary efforts by businesses will not be enough. Even with the most committed leadership from the business community, we will fall short in our efforts to tackle the US contribution to this global dilemma. While many businesses want to do the right thing, and I saw that time and time again during my tenure at EPA, there will always be those that simply refuse to do anything unless required. So in order to ensure that all with greenhouse gas emissions, are held accountable, and that a patchwork of state regulations doesn't bog down business, it is time for Congress to pass national legislation. Last week, some of you may have seen this, a Senate committee began hearings on climate change. They called, as witnesses, industry representatives, environmental leaders, others. The questions included, who should be regulated? The upstream producers of energy or the downstream consumers? Should an emissions credit trading scheme be implemented? And if so, how should the credits be doled out? Should the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions in the US be connected with regulations in other countries? How much negative impact is permissible? Should the US avoid international cooperation until China and India are also held to common standards? Obviously, all important questions. Obviously, each difficult. There are other questions that have to be asked. How much reduction by when? What are the right caps on greenhouse gas emissions? What are the target dates? Apparently, uh, the governor today talked about an 80 and 85% reduction by the year 2050. Is that the right cap? Is that the right target date? Should companies that have gone early, should the companies that have led the way, who have already made reductions, should they be rewarded? Should they be recognized in some new system for the work that they have already done. The Kyoto Protocol requires industrialized countries to collectively reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 5.2% below 1990 levels by 2012. The truth of the matter is, I don't think this country will ever ratify Kyoto. I was part of an administration that worked very hard to secure an agreement. And President Clinton, in fact, signed the Kyoto Protocol. But he chose not to send it to the United States Senate because he recognized they would not ratify it. And the primary reason has to do with the role of China and India. Clearly, ultimately, their emissions will need to be addressed. But I think for the United States, we should view Kyoto as a road map as a signal, as an indication of how we should proceed. But to spend energy in the United States Congress trying to secure ratification of Kyoto at this point in time, I believe, simply detracts from the very necessary efforts to secure domestic requirements, to secure legal requirements for businesses to begin the work of reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. Now, as we think about how we should go about doing this, I think it's important to think about how we've structured environmental programs heretofore. One of the important issues in environmental programs is the role of science. And we have long accepted in our environmental laws on the books the notion that Science is never done. And so the argument that we need more science before we make a decision about how to proceed is simply not an appropriate argument. We have enough science. We have volumes of science about the nature of this problem. There was any number of decisions that have been made over the years by EPA, important decisions. For example, the decision to ban lead in gasoline. There was science, there was a fair amount of science, but none of that science could tell us how many IQ points might be lost in a child exposed to the lead contamination. The science couldn't tell us one child would experience uh, a problem and another might not. Well, we didn't wait for those scientific questions to be answered. We went ahead and we made a decision to ban lead in gasoline. If we had waited for all of that science, the truth of the matter is we might still have lead in gasoline today. We certainly would have had it for at least another generation. Similarly, we have been willing throughout our history, our efforts towards public health and environmental protection to set standards where we didn't perhaps have the technology that would allow us to meet the standard. The Congress in 1990 made the decision to ban CFCs, to ban chlorofluorocarbons. At that point in time, there was no known substitute commercially available for CFCs. Yet Congress said, we're banning them. They're contributing to the hole in the upper ozone. We're part of a treaty. We're banning them. Very, very quickly, much more quickly than anyone anticipated, good old American innovation, good old American ingenuity rose to the occasion, and we had a substitute for CFCs. We don't need to wait to make a set of decisions about reducing greenhouse gases until every scientific study is done, until every piece of technology is in hand. We will find the answers. Now, sometimes you'll hear people suggest that the best way to go about making decisions within the environmental context is through a cost-benefit analysis that we should look at what are the costs to industry of reducing their pollution and what are the benefits to society. And unless the costs are are less than the benefits, then we shouldn't proceed with the decision. I totally agree with the need for cost benefits. I think it's a very important tool. I don't believe it should dictate the final decision. We did a study when I was at EPA. We went back and looked at the costs associated with the Clean Air Act and the decisions that had been made and the regulations on the books, the ones on the books. And we looked at the benefits. And what did we find? We found in virtually every instance, and certainly across the board when taken as a whole, the cost to industry of reducing their pollution to meet Clean Air Act requirements inevitably turned out to be less than was originally anticipated, because people got smarter about solution and the benefits greater, that it wasn't simply the benefits in terms of perhaps uh, hospital visits, lost work days. There were broader benefits to the economy. And so if we decide to constrain our decision making as we attempt to address the problem of climate change and, and global warming to the outcome of a cost-benefit analysis, I fear that we will make, uh, at best, an insignificant step towards addressing this very real and this very troubling problem. Others will suggest that voluntary programs are the way to go. I was part of an administration that had a voluntary program for greenhouse gas reductions. Uh, The current administration has a voluntary program. But as you heard, since 1990, since the advent of these voluntary programs, emissions are, in fact, fought. We've made a lot of progress in this country in terms of addressing traditional environmental problems. Certainly, our skies are clearer, our water's a little bit safer. I'm not suggesting that the job is done. But we have been able to do this because we have been committed to a regulatory agenda, to a regulatory program. And I believe that is what we need to do now. We need to set a legal cap. We need to embrace emissions credit trading. We need to be willing to reward the companies that have led the way. We need to recognize that there are some technologies uh, that will help, for example, sequestration. We need to recognize investment in other uh, parts of the world where emissions are high. We need Congress to provide the leadership. I do think that the tides are changing. I think we're seeing more and more companies Calling on Congress. We're seeing more people in Congress suggesting legislation. Uh, McCain, Lieberman, uh, Dianne Feinstein has recently indicated that she intends to introduce a bill. No doubt the naysayers will continue to be a part of the debate. But there have always been naysayers, there's been those who said the world wasn't round. Are those who said that AIDS wasn't a problem, or those who said that perhaps we shouldn't integrate. We cannot allow the naysayers, naysayers to dictate this debate. This debate has to be informed by the science. It has to be informed by the people who understand the problem and the businesses who are already taking steps to address the problem. If we don't do anything, if we fail to act, we will become the first generation that has left to another generation a problem that really can't be solved. Generation after generation leaves problems to the next. Some ways, I suppose it's the way of the world. But no generation has yet left a permanently altered planet. One of the great things about being at EPA were all of the wonderful engineers I got to work with, truly smart, amazing people. There's not a one among them that could reverse sea level rise once it starts to happen. There's not an engineer here at this great institution who could do that. I don't believe we want to be the first generation that leads, leads to the next, a problem that cannot be solved. The World Commission on Environment and Development said in 1987, the basic value of a sustainable society, the ecological equivalent of the golden rule, is simple. Each generation should meet its needs without jeopardizing the prospects for future generations to meet their own needs. Surely that's not too tough a rule to live by. The um, great American humorist Mark Twain may have had different meteorological events in mind when he said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, we may not be able to control the weather, I'm sure you all would like to stop, what is it, day 30 of the rain? (laughs) But I do believe We can, but more importantly, that we will control how our actions contribute to global warming. Even though the challenges of global warming are far greater than any environmental problem we have faced, I do believe we will rise to the challenge. Failure is simply not an option. Thank you all very much.
1: You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. To receive our Conversations updates and learn what new podcasts are available, please subscribe to our free bi-monthly newsletter at www.siconversations.org.
2: Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Stephen Eng. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier.
1: My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening.